Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Seth Purcell. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. All right. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I started as a programmer uh, when I was 10 years old on an Apple II in 1990 and got sucked into it and loved the creativity of programming and software um, and actually uh, put myself through college uh, doing that on the side, uh, various jobs working in ISP uh, among other places. And uh, actually in college, I studied uh, aeronautics and astronautics because I thought it was amazing and interesting um, and had worked at NASA for a couple summers, but then graduated and decided to stick with software, which I just really loved being hands-on with. And unfortunately, I graduated in 2001 into the bursting of the dot-com bubble. And a lot of places uh, weren't hiring. But one place that was hiring was the Human Genome Project, which was at the uh, Whitehead Institute there in Boston, where I was. And uh, so I joined there and uh, spent the first few years of my career working on uh, algorithms and kind of like early um, AI ML techniques, uh, doing automated annotation of genomic sequences on genomes, human and otherwise, which was super fun and full of great, interesting people. And then I decided I wanted to uh, try to learn more about business and I went into finance. Um, and of course, you can see how much I didn't know. Uh, just based on that statement, because finance is not really business, and I didn't learn any business in finance. Mm. Um, I learned a lot of finance, which is useful and interesting. Um, I worked at a hedge fund based in London, uh, trading uh, United States residential mortgage-backed securities, which became famous in 2008. They did. <laughs> so I had a front row seat to that and was briefly very popular at parties, uh, explaining to everyone why they were suddenly poor. And after that, uh, like many computery people in finance, I decided to jump out and join the startup world. So I was in New York City and the New York City startup scene just flooded with all these ex-finance people. And uh, I worked at uh, several different startups and rose through the ranks, finally being a CTO at a company called Signpost that made marketing automation software for small businesses. And I was there for a little more than six years. And I left there uh, after my son was born uh, just to be able to revel in that experience and take a very much needed break. Um, and then while I was recuperating, I started really getting into the practice of product research and how that underpins uh, really valuable startups and the, the concept of customer development. And, you know, that was really, you know, it was outside the realm of engineering. It was really interesting to me and just really kind of, you know, is the foundations of creating value. And uh, one thing led to another. And I found myself co-founder and starting this company, uh, Constructor, uh, which is trying to create the simplest possible way for software development teams to keep track of their progress and track what they're uh, working on um, and just stay out of everyone's way and not just be, you know, a nightmare like, you know, we're commonly uh, used to having to deal with. Mm, awesome. Oh, man, so many things there that I want to ask you about. I mean, what it was like on the Human Genome Project. Sounds like you had kind of front row seats to two very uh, big market uh, events, the dot-com. And then, of course, you, you had a front row seat to the, the finance uh, mortgage uh, crisis as, as well. But um, I, think, I think what, you know, sort of makes me jump the most is how how do you how do you view pr 
programming differently now than let's say when when you i don't know graduated college i, I don't really want to go as far back as to when you were when you were 10 years old <laughs> unless you're uh, a professional and then there i suppose there's child labor implications there but how do you how do you think your um yeah your your views on the discipline or the the profession have have changed that's a great question fyi i turned pro at 16 um, nice. and yeah uh, i was actually homeschooled uh so i could just kind of do that and no one was paying attention um although people came over to where i was working and would ask me how old i was <laughs> <laughs> thinking something strange was going on in this office um, and I just, I'm like, yeah, I'm 16. My mom drops me off. I can't drive yet. So uh, that's amazing. But yeah, the, the number one arc I would identify in my maturation as an engineer has been from a uh, kind of solution mindset to a problem mindset, mm. um, which might not be that clear. Um, let, me, let me try to articulate that. There's this great quote from design, which is design is a conversation with your medium. And, you know, so code is our medium. And it's very, very easy for me and lots of nerds to be really kind of immersed in the medium and in love with the medium and, you know, start spouting about elegance, <laughs> elegant <laughs> code, and, you know, to really fall in love with the medium and, you know, go deep on, you know, syntax and semantics of various languages and, you know, algorithms and databases and networking protocols and just kind of, you know, fall into the matrix. And um, that was definitely me, um, like all the way through my 20s. And, uh, you know, as I, as I started to emerge from that pattern, and especially as I began to move into management, my mindset, even, you know, in, in, in technical things and engineering began to transform into what is, what is the goal? What is the problem? How do I solve that problem? Uh, and, and it's usually not my problem. It's someone else's problem. How do I... How do we understand that problem and come to grips with that problem and solve that problem, cognizant of you know all the trade-offs um, as quickly as possible? And, and, and it's a completely different mindset. Um, mm. And it's one where the technology uh, becomes secondary to the value. And you know, I think you know, based on my experience as a manager and a you know, mentor, that is a pretty common journey for people to take. Um, mm. I'm pretty envious of people who kind of started off on the value. Do you mean meaning you think you think that it it would be a huge advantage to have made that journey quicker or to, totally. to start? Okay, totally. Um, and I mean the thing is like here's another way to put it is do you see code as an end in itself or as a means to an end? And you know, well into my twenties, I saw code as an end in itself, and uh, I just loved it, and that made me make horrible decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have examples of like a horrible decision that this type of thinking could lead to? Oh, yeah. Like, um, you know, in 2008, I was working on a startup with a buddy of mine and we, we just kept focusing on the technical problems instead of the business problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are a bunch of, you know, cognitive failure modes involved in that one I like to call tractability bias, which is our tendency to work on things that we know how to do. Mm -hmm. as opposed to the things that we should be doing but have no idea how to approach. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, the problem just becomes figuring out how do I approach this. But because I love the technology so much and I love learning new stuff, I mean, it's, it's addictive to me. I'm, I'm like, a, like a learning addict. I just say, oh, well, you know, our product needs this and I'm going to figure out how to build that. And oh, darn, it looks like I have to learn this new technology called Node <laughs> or something. Ah, I guess I just have to spend the next two months going really deep on Node. And we're like submitting PRs to Node. 
and all this ridiculous stuff in the meantime, like, are we talking to customers? No. And, you know, so the question is like, what that really illuminates is, is purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And what was my purpose in doing this? And my purpose in doing this was not apparently, you know, business success, right? Because that's, yeah. that wasn't driving my decisions, right? And, you know, to be rational, you need a goal. And the foundation of rationality is choosing the right goal. And um, if you are in love with your tools, if you're in love with your technologies, if you're in love with learning, that can serve you really well in a, a very narrow role, right? If it's like your job to be the guy who knows MySQL so well that AWS calls you, that's going to serve you very well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're in a more general role, you know, if you're starting to move into management, right? If you're a tech lead, if you're, you know, an engineering manager, that's going to that's going to hurt you and <laughs> it's going to it's going to be difficult for you right. to move in that role and that's you know kind of correlated with not wanting to move in that role sometimes um mm-hmm. but yeah it's the you know one of the you know common um tropes for entrepreneurs is like fall in love with a problem don't fall in love with a solution i say that quote all the time and that was the that was the first thing that came to mind when you were bringing this up right which is related but not identical here it's like I wasn't falling, I mean, I'm completely guilty of falling in love with solutions all the time, don't get me wrong. But another thing I'm guilty of that I'm trying to highlight is uh, falling in love with uh, the medium, right? Falling in love with technologies, falling in love with geeking out over man pages uh, of various things, right? And this is just, you know, it's, it's a dangerous distraction. You have to ask yourself, what do you want? Do you want to mm-hmm. succeed or do you want to, you know, have fun, right? Do you want to learn? And yes, you know, the dream for many people is that those go hand in hand and you can succeed and have fun. And my experience is that's true in all jobs, including management. And to some extent, it's not true in all jobs, in, in, including engineering, right? Like no matter what, if you have like what you think of as your perfect, there's still going to be parts of it that you hate. <laughs> there's just no way, there's no way around it. Like any, any real job, there are going to be parts of it that drive you nuts. Um, and any job that you think, oh my God, this is going to be the worst job in the world. There, there are part, there are going to be parts that you love, right? And it, it's sometimes hard to predict, you know, beforehand uh, which way that's going to go. But I'm getting a little off topic. Um, the, the, ma- the main topic is the, the number one thing I learned was for all my love of technology. And, you know, this, this I think correlates with great technologists, right? Great technologists have a really deep understanding of their tools because they're curious and they, you know, go down all the rabbit holes and they, you know, explore all the edge cases. And that makes them very, very valuable in, you know, kind of, uh, you know, failure mode avoidance and building things that are, you know, performant mm-hmm. and uh, scalable, et cetera. But, you know, the downside of that is, you know, that curiosity and that love of learning is, you know, at the end of the day, that can be an expensive distraction from solving the customer's problem. And if you're fundamentally more interested in the technology than you are in the customers, um, that's going to, that, I mean, that's clearly going to impair your ability to yeah. solve their problem. And, you know, one of my little aphorisms I like to say is business is the art of solving someone else's problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's in, in, until you've tried it, it's, it's hard to understand how hard it is to put yourself in someone else's shoes and, and really it, rock their problem. Yeah. Was it was there a point in time that that started to change for you or was it just sort of gradual and and looking back, you can say like, oh, now I think this way. And, you know, at the beginning, I thought that way. was it a smooth gradient or were there particular things that helped you see the other side of it? Uh, I'd say it really when to overdrive when I was a VP of engineering mm. and, you know, didn't know much about product, but started working with product people, you know, at a, a much deeper level than I had before. And, you know, kind of really, you know, finally learning business that I intended to learn in finance and utterly didn't, you know, it was joining a rapidly growing startup um, 
in a, <laughs> a leadership role uh, is, is a great way to learn that really rapidly. And, you know, just the, the, the goals were so crystal clear. And, you know, I realized that part of, a big part of my job was pushing those goals down through the organization and getting everyone on the same page and creating a culture of, you know, solving the business's problems and the customer's problems with, you know, the, the technology kind of taking a, you know, boring procurement backseat to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that dramatically accelerated, you know, I was, I was starting to slowly figure it out. I, I figured things out like very slowly, but, um, that being in that role and, you know, just trying to figure out how we move as quickly as possible to, to create what the business needs, um, mm -hmm. really sped it up quite a lot. And how did, how did you spread the gospel, so to speak, to your engineers? Was that something that was easy that they, you could just kind of say what you said just now and they'd be like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense now. Now I'm going to care more about that than learning new technologies. Or was there some other way? Because I think that the danger for an engineer is that, that that may sound all well and good, but in some sense, it, it, it almost devalues the engineer. Uh, you know, it's like you're not the center of the universe. What you're doing is not the most important thing. And by the way, that thing that you really enjoy, um, you should think twice before, you know, spending spending more time on that. So. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, how did you um, get your engineers to, to kind of change their values a little bit? Yeah, so, right, so that's a question about building culture, uh, which I am pretty obsessed with, and uh, had several tactics. Um, one was you, you, you start from almost a blind sheet of paper. <laughs> um, so several times when I've taken over teams, the people that I wanted to let go quit before I could, which was very helpful to me. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> that they did that. They saw the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, and they got out of my way, which was fantastic. Um, and, you know, uh, teams shrank considerably. And then I got to build them up, uh, build them up basically from scratch. Um, and, you know, everyone knows how hard it is. I think everyone knows how hard it is to change a culture. So, you know, that's just a shortcut, which is, you know, starting from scratch, <laughs> you get to build a culture and building a culture as much as in changing a culture. And, uh, you know, the next, the next thing, right, is, is who you, who you hire. You can hire people who kind of clearly have this mentality. And, and I think it comes through in conversations, right? I mean, it's, you know, interviewing is extremely difficult, right? In, in terms of, you know, minimizing false positives and false negatives. But, you know, when I think of cultural fit, it's it's, it's this, it's not like wishy-washy. It's not like, are there a frat bro who likes to play <laughs> which, you know, I, I hate right. I mean, that that's the, people the danger. think of as culture. Yeah. 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 To me, culture fit is, does this person want to ship product or does this person want to like faff about with, you know, Elasticsearch or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like what is their actual um, goal in their, in their, in their work? Do you um, consider that to be values? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, th mm -hmm. I, I think fundamentally it is. And right. So, so, you know, what, what I'm implying there is, you know, onboard people with compatible values, right? Mm -hmm. Don't, don't really try to change those. Values. And once you have momentum, you know, you, you can, you can build cultural momentum and then you can onboard people. Like, you know, I, I would hire a lot of people fresh out of college and they would join this culture and, you know, they have no idea what normal is. And mm -hmm. so they join this culture and they, you know, gradually will like, we mold them into that culture. And that's, that's pretty easy. But, you know, if, you know, occasionally we'd interview people and I'm just like, no, this person's going to be a toxic disaster. Um, like they're, they're clearly smart, but they're also like, you know, think they're the smart, <laughs> think they're the smartest mm -hmm. and, or, you know, they, they're just, you know, like way, way too into this obscure thing. And, and it's, it's, it's not gonna, there's just not a fit. Yeah. I mean, if you're paddling a boat, by all means, you want really strong, uh, strong people who can who can move that or but it's the worst thing in the world if they're like not 
you know, paddling in the same direction or with the rest of the team. For sure. And then I was, you know, almost painfully repetitive and explicit about this culture. And mm. uh, rule number one in building culture, I tried to exemplify it uh, constantly in every possible opportunity. Um, mm. And when I saw uh, violations of it among you know, my lieutenants, <laughs> they would hear from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I tried to push it all the way down through the ranks because um, we just had like a, you know, kind of in, extremely disciplined mentality about helping the business. And, you know, at my monthly all hands, I would, you know, have this thing called culture corner. <laughs> I would, mm-hmm. uh, you know, explicitly talk about our culture and just drive it home to, to be clear. You know, there's this expression I love, which is culture is what you do, not what you say you do. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't say you do stuff uh, to kind of like help new joiners. We were always hiring, right? So it's you know nice to be explicit, but you know it just means that like you know you know uh, you got to walk the walk as as well mm-hmm. as talk the talk. But um, so yeah, I would I would say that you know rule number one in our culture was we build business value. <laughs> um, that's what we build. We happen to you know use code most of the time, but if the best way for us to build business value is you know do something strange, um, then that's what we'll do, right? And we just happen to be you know optimized for building business value by building and you know shipping product um but i wouldn't say i I would definitely not say it devalued engineers at all Um, it differently values engineers and if we use the analogy of like soldiers you know is is the point of a soldier to be like an expert marksman you know who can you know um like strip his weapon like and clean Mm -hmm. it super fast and knows everything about you know weapons and ammunition and kind of like geeks out or is the point of a soldier to win battles Mm-hmm. And I think it's the latter. And that's more was about outcomes. Exactly. And that's what I drilled into my team. And the engineering team was incredibly highly valued in the organization. Mm-hmm. There was never any, oh, you know, you're just an engineer, just go do it. The, the, the rest of the company really understood the caliber of engineering team that we had there. And I think that was in large part because they knew the engineering team was obsessed with business performance and, and, you know, winning those battles and, and outcomes um, and just didn't didn't really care about anything else. And, you know, when we pushed back, we were the ones pushing back saying, like, does this really solve the business's problem? And so, yeah, I would I would say it is a question of values. Like, what do you value? But it is not a question of valuation um, in that, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't think the engineers ever felt anything less than extremely valued, both, you know, by me and their managers and the broader organization, because this was our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I know that when I work with my managers, one of the things that that I you know cover early on, depending on um, their experience, is when you're leading, um, the probably the the lowest lowest form uh, or lowest like foundation of leadership is just position and role. Like, do this because I have rank and I'm telling you to do it. Yeah, authority. Um, yeah, authority. And when you when you have that focus that you talk about on the business outcome, or uh, usually the way that I think about it is is serving the customer or the the user, um, it becomes a lot easier to to lead, right? Like mm. uh, you can. I don't know if it's so much motivation, but it's we're doing this because we want to help the user. Right. If you mm-hmm. if you can argue with me to say, like, no, this is not in service of the user, then I'm, I'm likely to relent in, you know, what I'm telling you to do. But if you're unable to and you agree that this is this is going to help them the most, then it, it makes it it's it's a much clearer reason 
for the the engineer to to do it um and exactly yeah keeping that in mind I, I i find to be very very important for managers yeah alignment of goals mm -hmm. is everything so so going going further from that that higher level culture um considering that this is this is even uh i guess what you have built your business on now how did that did that translate directly into things like process and project management or are those a little bit more orthogonal and and how did you how did you go from those higher level uh output goals to you know more what you wanted to see see the team doing like day by day so you know going from you know the kind of the, the higher level uh, outcome goals that is that is tricky. I mean, that's that's hard work to do right. Um, that involves a lot of guesses and bets, mm. um, and that's where you need, uh, you know, discipline. Um, and you know, that often comes down to right product management and and like technical strategy. Um, mm. And that's where you have kind of the experienced, uh, you know, senior engineers um, judging, you know, kind of looking at the product roadmap and saying like, you know okay, uh, we know this is probably going to change in two months, but <laughs> based on <laughs> based on what is, you know, shown to us now, like we're going to select these technologies uh, for these reasons. Um, and, you know, you, you, you build in hedges and then, um, you know, it's just a, a question of um, breaking, breaking the work down and, you know, trying to be uh, smart while running really fast. And, you know, of, of course this, you know, is, opening a door onto um, many, many topics <laughs> about how, um, you know, you, you you basically run an effective engineering team or uh, run an effective product team, but it's all, you know, it's all predicated on everyone has the same goals, right? You're aligned on the same goals and, you know, you kind of, you're, you're all, you're all pulling on the, on the oars uh, towards the mm -hmm. shared uh, the shared outcome, and I, I used to draw this um, stupid uh, business school diagram, which is um, on a whiteboard. Which is you put lots of little arrows, and you can you know put the little arrows on the board in all different directions. Um, but as a manager, it's your job to kind of line up all those arrows so they make one big arrow going going mm -hmm. the same direction. Um, and I would just the you know one piece of advice that comes to mind here is that does not happen automatically. That does not happen by itself. It's kind of like spinning plates. Uh, entropy dominates this, and mm -hmm. you know, even you know what's what's really phenomenal to see firsthand as a manager is a team of very smart people with very good intentions will still diverge from mm -hmm. the goal that you think they're working on, mm -hmm. um, just you know through you know random you know thermal fluctuations in, in, in people's <laughs> brains. And Damn, it, second law of thermo <laughs> team dynamics, and, and, it, and it requires kind of constant attention. And even if you're like, okay, great, we're all on the same page. And you come back a week later and you realize you were not on the same page, right. that there was something that you didn't talk about because both parties felt it was obvious and didn't need to be talked about, but had kind of different conceptions of that obvious answer in their mind. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just, you know, kind of something that you, you observe firsthand a few times and then you really internalize like, wow, we all, communication is really, really hard, effective communication. And we all have our different mental models of things. And you know, staying on top of that um, without falling prey to kind of like the Baroque overwrought processes from, you know, the 70s of, <laughs> you know, hundreds of pages in binders, uh, right? It's, it's like, how do you, how do you balance, you know, speed and agility with, you know, working, uh, making sure you're all working on the same thing? Yeah. As an engineer, 
is there something that that one should know that makes this alignment easier, makes the manager or the VP engineer or the CTOs helps them make this happen? Like, is it is it just as simple as you're an arrow, look at the other arrows and try and align <laughs> yourself? Or, or like, how should an engineer think about this? Yeah, I, I would say, by the way, I love the idea of someone making my job easier. I would say, make sure you really understand the problem that you're trying to solve. Like the, not not your piece of the problem, but like the overarching, like what problem is your team trying to solve? Like what problem is, what is the customer's problem, right? Why are you building this thing? Um, sometimes the customers, you know, an internal customer, like, you know, the sales team or the mm-hmm. customer success team or something, but, you know, whomever your customer is, get in their shoes and understand the problems as, as well as you can, given your visibility. If you don't really understand it, if you can't get firsthand, then hopefully like your your direct supervisor has it. And, you know, by the way, their job is communicating that down to you, but it always helps for it to be kind of like bi-directionally effortful where mm-hmm. everyone is trying to understand the problem as, as well as they can. And don't, um, I, I, I think, you know, where it goes wrong is when people are hesitant to ask questions mm. okay. uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason, when something isn't clear to them. And, you know, I find the best people probably because um, they don't have any imposter syndrome, <laughs> but... Um, the best people are completely willing to ask stupid questions all the time, up, down, right, and left. And mm-hmm. often those questions may not have good answers. And some people were thinking them, but thought, oh, you know, surely someone has thought of that already. I don't need to ask it. But, you know, junior engineers can do that. And I would love it when junior engineers <laughs> ask, ask questions to flesh out their understanding. And I, I think that's probably the biggest mistake of junior engineers is, being, um, at least in my experience, being kind of intimidated um, mm-hmm. a bit. And, and quiet and, you know, they, in my experience, they have great ideas. <laughs> They're super mm-hmm. smart. Um, they often have kind of like fresh eyes and, mm-hmm. you know, I, my, my advice would just be, you know, make sure you, you understand. And if you have questions, do not hesitate to ask those questions of everyone, the CEO, right? I don't mm-hmm. care. Just ask those questions and a healthy culture that is welcomed and appreciated and an unhealthy culture. Um, that is unwelcome and shot down. Yeah, I I think a lot of junior engineers. I mean, they do they do have that timidity. They they maybe it's because of imposter syndrome. They they don't want to annoy senior engineers, or they don't want to uh, take them. You know, kind of steal their their time or distract them. Uh, I do I do think that that it's not hard to imagine. Um, that question asking either be being done in a wrong way or mm-hmm. uh, either either that or, or being done too much that it actually is not um, seen as helpful by mm-hmm. senior engineers or leadership. I don't I don't think that that most junior engineers actually have to worry about that. I think yeah, I've never almost seen all of them are are way to one side. Exactly. Um, but how maybe maybe for those listeners who are worried that that they might you know cross that line onto the other side of the axis how how should they approach it or how do they know that they're not going too far yeah that's a that's a great question um i think part of it is reliance on senior staff uh i i noted that um my team would rely on me a lot and it frustrated me and i said like don't just take my dumb ideas like you know challenge them like you can't rely on me to you know have the right answer all the time. And a lot of times junior 
engineers will just assume like, wow, these, <laughs> these people are really impressive and they clearly know what they're doing. There is no way that they missed X or something, mm -hmm. which of course we missed X. <laughs> like we're really impressed. <laughs> it's like, um, so I, you know, where, where I, where I really put a lot of um, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be hard for the junior people to, to judge that. Um, and oh, also I think, you know, part, partly they might not want, they might think they're making someone look bad. Like, oh, if I ask this, like, I don't want to, I don't want to make, you know, Bob mm -hmm. look bad because he mm -hmm. didn't realize this, right? They have all those weird social hangouts. So for me, it was hugely important as a leader. This is really answering your question, but like to try to create an environment um, that was extremely welcoming and open and in this one way, egalitarian mm -hmm. um, to really, um, you know, try to make the junior people feel that they had kind of a, a seat at the table uh, where we were all equals. And I, I, I made that explicit again in like, you know, my uh, communicative cultural principles where um, the way I expressed it was good ideas can come from anywhere, mm -hmm. uh, meaning them, and bad ideas can come from anywhere, meaning me and, mm -hmm. and the CEO. Um, and I would hammer on that. And, you know, if, you know, a smart person who was junior was being too quiet in, you know, an architectural review meeting or something, I'd, you know, call on them. And I mean, yeah, there's the downside of putting them on the spot, but like they need they need to, um, I mean, I know, you know, I can just think back to what it was like me 21, you know, working on, in, in, in genomics and not knowing mm -hmm. anything and just looking around the room at all these eminent people and barely being able to you know, understand what's going on. And I know how um, intimidating it is. Um, so I would try to, I would try to kind of lower, lower that bar and, and engage them and make, uh, make the, the environment very friendly and forgiving. And I would, ask a lot of dumb questions myself. I would do, I would do a lot of things myself to try to like knock myself down mm. um, and, and just seem very um, like, you know, approachable. And I constantly got feedback that no one saw me as approachable. And so I, I just failed magnificently <laughs> at this, um, but I, tr I tried, everyone's like, Oh my God, everyone is so intimidated by you. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I tried, but you know, I, I, I have never seen, I, I, I can't recollect a single instance of a, a junior person asking uh, too many clarifying questions. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's something they need to be afraid of. I think they just need to, you know, kind of get over any reluctance. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully, um, you know, it's a, it's a culture that encourages that something interesting about my career is my first job after college was in science and, uh, science is wonderful because the whole point is objective truth. Uh, mm -hmm. which we unfortunately can't have in, in business most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that creates an environment where, you know, people can have opinions, but at the end of the day, the facts <laughs> are what the right, facts the data. are. Yeah. And so someone can stand up there and say like, hey, here's my theory, here's the data, and other people can challenge it. And it's this really, um, you know, beautiful, and, you know, some scientists can be brutal <laughs> unnecessarily, but, um, <laughs> but, the, the culture of openness of, you know, because ideas can be tested in science and, and to some, to some degree in business as well. Um, you can just say, Hey, here's an idea. Let's bat it around. Let's test it. Let's see if, you know, reality conforms to that. And I tried to bring that explicitly mm -hmm. into the culture of engineering of here are the facts. Here's what we know. Here's the idea. Go around the room. You know, what's our interpretation of these facts? What are, you know, ideas, um, for, you know, how to improve our you know, performance in, in some area or something. And I would try to capture that essence mm -hmm. of science where 
you know, science doesn't care. <laughs> like the facts don't care if the junior, the most junior person figured out the right approach or the most senior person. It just doesn't care, right? And I, and I try to, to really capture that. Um, I, I don't know how successful junior people will be at embodying that culture if they're not in a culture that operates that way. Um, but that is the culture I aspire to. Um, and I just kind of unconsciously absorb it from working in science. And then many years later realized what I was doing and how different mm-hmm. it was from uh, how other teams operated and where I had gotten it from. Uh, but that has always been kind of like my cultural mm-hmm. touchstone is completely flat. And it's, it's just the opposite of how Japan operates, right? <laughs> where the, the head <laughs> so heard. opinion is, is fact. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and here it's just, you know, the complete egalitarian opposite. Um, mm-hmm. the, the queuing system doesn't care, right? right. Um, you know, what's yeah. your idea? Oh, that's a great idea. We're going to go with that. Forget, forget which book. I think it was a Malcolm Gladwell book about a, a Korean air, um, uh, airplane crash where the, uh, I guess the captain, um, wasn't, or like the co-pilot or something kept trying to get the captain's attention, but was never able to overtly point out a mistake. Ugh. And, um, you know, it led to a pretty serious disaster. Uh, and yeah, I would, I mean, I, I, I really like what you said. I mean, you just, you just never want to wind up in a situation like that and you have to actively foster the culture and the habits of allowing good ideas to come from anywhere mm-hmm. and recognize bad ideas. Um, I, you know, one thing I will, I'll, I'll, on the subject of asking too many questions, I, I think if I, if I were to specifically say a get out of jail free card to any junior developer that, that is timid about asking questions, I would say that you are totally allowed to ask any question that you want if you first spend 15 minutes trying to find the answer and in asking the question, you describe what you did to find the answer and what, what you found and, you know, what, you know, and then asking, asking your question. I think that that usually disarm or deflates a lot of mm. what, what a lot of senior people who are busy and, and if they are grumpy about getting interrupted, mm-hmm. their first response is, is always to be like, go read the manual. <laughs> exactly. And this, this takes that away. It proves to them that you are, you're not just pushing the work onto them, that, that you're trying. And it often communicates where the documentation might be insufficient, mm-hmm. which is a valuable thing for them, for them to know. Um, but I, I also want to go to, 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 to something that you, you mentioned about, um, you know, the, I guess more of that scientific culture. How, how important do you think that languages and specific, specific words are in this type of communication? Um, and, and specifically what I'm getting at is, is I don't know if I ever really f- explicitly bring this up on Teams, but I do find that it's, I personally find it's important to talk about the idea in in you know more distant terms and not like your idea or my idea. It's always like this idea versus that idea, or mm. like this approach versus that approach. Is this is this something that you've thought about, or or is this like kind of meaningless and no one's actually paying that much attention? No, I I, I kind of wholeheartedly agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean it's 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 social dynamics. Right, like we can't, uh, we can't escape it. Um, and if if we want to be a maximally performant team, we we have to take that kind of stuff into account. Um, 
And, you know, something I like to do that I've seen other people copy from me is, um, you know, posit an idea uh, couched as a very dumb idea mm -hmm. <laughs> I do that all the time. Um, here's a dumb idea. And, you know, people will make these horrified faces when, mm -hmm. you know, they realize how dumb it is 90% um, of the time. <laughs> and 10% of the time, they're like, oh, that's not actually a horrible idea. That no, might actually funny. work. Right. And where I'm trying to get to is, yeah, just what you what you don't want is a culture where people clam up about their ideas. And, you know, again, that's me trying to uh, model, right? Mm -hmm. set, an, set an example of being unafraid to mm -hmm. be wrong or be an idiot. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's important for junior people to somehow cross that threshold and, and have that confidence. And I, I do think language, concrete language is, and, and more broader than just uh, verbal language, body language, mm -hmm. especially, um, which is, you know, impaired in this age of Zoom meetings. But mm -hmm. all that stuff, I think, is hugely important in um, making the team dynamics functional. And, you know, it's, it's we, not I. And it's, you know, here's a dumb idea. Or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I love that idea. And, you know, it, in, in the leader role, this is, this is something I discovered is I, I was not really interested in uh, social dynamics, right? I'm, I'm, you know, a nerdy engineer and didn't really care about it at all until I realized that it was really working against me. Um, mm. And people were afraid to speak up in meetings, mm -hmm. right? And then I realized, no, this stuff is real and I need to understand it and practice it um, and compensate for these invisible things that are kind of pre-installed in people um, to get us to a better place as a team. And part of that is the language we, we all use, especially leadership, right? People mm -hmm. are so sensitive to what leaders say and do that we, you know, it's just part of the job to be very cognizant of that, both in how we're interacting with people who might be like several rungs of the ladder below us and, you know, kind of like very easy to kind of like crush their morale um, or, or make them really happy. Uh, we just have to be, you know, aware of the weight we're throwing around um, and also aware that you know as the, as the saying goes we're on stage every day right so we have to model the behaviors we want um, and then to some degree we have to kind of compensate for inherent social dynamics and you know every every tool that we can use there you know how we dress how we stand how how we speak volume wise you know as well as the words we're saying right it's all it's all part of that yeah um the uh, the dumb idea thing reminded me of uh, of a, a a technique that um can be pretty successful for for making a decision that, that might be sort of stuck in indecision you know a common common situation back when people worked in offices would be hey where do you want to go to lunch i don't know where do you want to go <laughs> and you could throw out a dumb idea nothing against mcdonald's but if someone said like let's go to mcdonald's then you would trigger like oh no i don't want to go to mcdonald's let's go go, you know, let's go to Chipotle instead mm -hmm. or something. It can like force someone to, you know, pull up an alternative. And so I would say it's valuable to to throw out a dumb idea, even if it, you know, you have no intention of that Definitely. idea. Yeah. It, it's just a place to, to start. Yep. I do um, that all the time. I call it the baseline. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, um, well, here's a baseline and then let's improve on that. So, uh, so one question that, that I've been meaning to ask you, because I know you now, uh, especially with your focus on customer de development and research, you know, you work with, um, I guess, you, you know, you work on project management software, 
this leads you to talk to a lot of different teams. I know, you know, I, I talked to you about how um, I, I work with, with my teams. And what, what have you learned in that process? Like, has there anything that, that you have learned that has been surprising to you in a like, oh, wow, I bet, you know, this would be useful for more teams to know or, mm -hmm. yeah, let me tell um, me. Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. Uh, in, in fact, um, you know, something I want to explore doing is kind of opening up the results of our research to a wider audience, because I, I think it could help the, the very teams that we're talking to to understand kind of uh, what other teams do. Uh, the number one takeaway for me so far has been everyone is kind of embarrassed about what they're doing. Bailing <laughs> like, wire and, uh, yeah, and paper clips. Everyone is like, yeah, you know, I'm sure other places do it better, but literally no place does it better. That was uh, wonderful for me to find out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like, yeah, this is fascinating. Like everyone is like, oh yeah, no, like this is just, you know, it's not great. You know, we're, we're working on this and, you know, they're clearly so dissatisfied with is that like managerial that, imposter syndrome or is it just the state know, of the tools or something? I, uh, yeah, I don't the discipline. I, I think it's just, um, well, what I think it is, is a lack of training. Mm. So people don't have the right expectations and a lack of, um, concordance between ostensible best practices and reality. And, you know, there are a million blog posts and this is how you should do it. And, you know, it's very easy to write a blog post, but then, you know, um, <laughs> in the fog of war, uh, product won't let you do that. <laughs> yeah. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah, I just like, you know, one after another, you know, it's, I, I find smart, hardworking people making sound trade-offs given their constraints um, and the tools that they have. Mm -hmm. And instead of, you know, thinking we're doing great. Most of them think they're doing poorly. Mm. So that has been an interesting result. That's awesome. Um, hey, Seth, uh, thank you so much. This has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? I have a LinkedIn page, just uh, Seth Purcell um, is my LinkedIn handle. And you can visit my company site, which is constructor.dev. Um, but, you know, you won't learn too much about me on that yet. Uh, it's pretty minimal at this point. Um, and I have a uh, Twitter account that I rarely use, uh, but should really uh, step that up. Um, I'm just uh, Seth P-U-R-C, S-E-T-H-P-U-R-C on Twitter. Nice. So uh, so you recommend that if some devs are, are really unhappy with Jira, they should um, give Constructor a look? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> we've been uh, rescuing people from Jira since day one. Like, I hate Jira so much. <laughs> uh, all right, Seth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, David. This was great. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Having trouble finding senior front-end and full-stack engineers? Sponsoring JSLA is one of the best ways to get in front of the best JavaScript devs in Los Angeles. To learn more, head over to js.la sponsorship or send me an email at david at js.la.